Humanity has the stars in its future, and the future is too important to be lost under the burden of juvenile folly and ignorant superstition. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. Take a bow, Isaac. Isaac Asimov. It's a great, it's a great quote. One of my favourites. Really is. So uh, I've got an interview later on, Jamie, with that I did with the guys down at Goon Hilly. Yes, the goons. So the go- <laughs> So yes, a, a chap called Eddie Search took me round the facilities. So it's one of those ones that uh, it's going to be interesting as a podcast because he's talking about lots of different bits within the facility. So you have to use your mind's eye. Oh yeah. But I will be putting uh, but I did take some pictures as I went round so that you can refer to what he talketh about. Beautiful stuff. Okay. Okay, well, mm-hmm. let's listen mm-hmm. out for that. And before we get on to the uh, quite comprehensive space news this week, mm. of which there is much, um, I was reading an article, Jamie, in the Journal for the British Interplanetary Society yes. about using miniature magnetospheres to protect spacecraft from radiation. Of course you were. It's just the kind of thing you do on your time off. Sunday afternoon. It was a little bit rainy. Uh, with my pipe and slippers and yeah. smoking jacket, yeah. reading Jabis. And I came across this article by Ruth Barnford of the Rutherford Appleton Laboratory. And it's ever so good. It's I ever so wish good. I worked in the Rutherford Appleton Laboratory. Sounds like a nice place to be. One of the biggest problems, as we know about space exploration, Jamie, hmm. is what? It's probably people shitting in space. <laughs> other than the toilet issue which obviously is a big deal what, what else come on uh well explosions explosions what about radiation radiation it's a big one it's a big one radiation jamie see here on earth we're, we're protected from it we're protected from, so on earth we we tend to have just the decay from heavy elements like radium and uranium and gamma rays and x-rays and things mm. like that to worry about, right? It's, and they're no big deal. And, of course, obviously, we've evolved to cope with them, I suppose. Uh, but the Earth, what does the Earth do? The Earth protects us mm. from radiation out in space. Now, radiation out in space is is ridiculous because there's all these things happening in the centres of suns, black holes, pulsars, quasars, supernova explosions. And all those things basically chuck out protons alpha particles and the heavier nuclei like things like iron they get their electrons stripped off and the nucleus of those of the iron um atoms gets flung out into into space at ridiculous speed so Mm. you can imagine all this stuff flying around like bullets in fact much much faster than bullets with higher energy etc etc and uh, so, yeah, these energies go up to mega electron volts and sometimes up to hundreds of giga electron volts. Jeez. Which is, yeah, which is very bad for you. That's crazy, so, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So astronauts in the Apollo era saw blinding flashes of light mm. when the high energy particles hit their retina and things like that. So it's incredibly bad for solar panels. It's incredibly horrible on human tissue as well so you've really got to do something about it what are we going to do then from the 1950s onwards 
Uh, and we've talked about Explorer One because we had the we 60th anniversary of it quite recently. Uh, Explorer One was the first to kind of really start looking into this problem of space radiation and actually seeing exactly what it was like and, and, and why we're protected. And it started mapping out the fact that the Earth was creating this magnetosphere as a protection for uh, us all here on Earth, obviously by complete coincidence. Uh, but this but this magnetosphere protects us from all this violence out in space. And so the idea of using this same kind of phenomena called active shielding, using a magnetosphere to protect a spacecraft, has been around since those times. And there's even pictures of things like the Starship Enterprise with this system in place. That's right. But uh, when anyone's done a, a proper survey into this sort of thing... Um, it always looks to be completely impractical. It's too expensive and too bulky. But this study seems to suggest that there's some hope. Finally, a bit of hope. Yeah. So I, I'm trying. I was trying to think of an analogy that I could get my head around this. But basically, they've the, in all previous studies, they've treated all these particles, these high energy particles, as being discrete particles being fired at you like a bullet hmm. and you trying to use like a ma like giant magnets to bend the bullet's path away from you and obviously if you were to do that uh in real life you would need very very powerful magnets right mm -hmm. but what if those bullets were more were sort of contained in in a water cannon maybe the effect of the water surrounding the bullets actually helps you deflect them away easier Ah. So I think I think that's the analogy that kind of works. I mean, obviously, it's way from a way, way, way far from what's actually going on here. But I think this study, instead of treating it like individual particles, it's treating it like a plasma, and they've discovered that really you don't need as much energy and uh, and bulkiness as you would have previously thought. And they've tried to verify that in laboratory experiments in mm. solar wind tunnels, for example, and computer simulations. But also, these things actually occur naturally on the surface of the moon. Right. And create these things called lunar swirls, which are beautiful. Ooh. And there's two, two spacecraft that have revealed these lunar uh, swirls in pretty amazing detail. And that's the Chinese Chang'e 2 mm. and the Indian Chandrayaan 1. So they've been looking at these, and these little pockets of very kind of weak uh, magnetospheres that are on the surface of the moon, which are just these little anon anomalous, an anomalous, anomalous, anomalous <laughs> uh, sort of <laughs> anomalous kind of uh, rocky outcrops that create these weird magnetospheres, and they're protecting the surface of the moon so that the surface of the moon is whiter in patches because the solar wind never discolors it because it's being bent around. So they've looked at some spacecraft design by Mark G. Benton that he published in AIAA in 2011. Yes. And they think that, yeah, you could probably do it with 20 kilowatts of power and superconducting magnetic coils that only weighed about three tonnes, including the cooling. Right. And that should get the particle flux down by 20%. And if you were to pump plasma back into that, you might be able to get it down to 80 to 90% uh, deflection, which would protect the astronauts massively. Yeah, that absolutely would. Blimey. Okay. This paper seems to suggest, although they did admit 
that this kind of fluid dynamics and and is unbelievably complicated. The, the mechanisms are ridiculously complicated. Mm. But they think that maybe active shielding, deflector shielding, is coming of age, and that we may only be ten years away from actually having a fully functional active deflector shield for our spacecraft. Wow. That's not that far. No, it's not, and it, and it's and it's mainly due to the fact that there's a lot of progress in uh, convergent technologies. So you have, you know, superconducting technology has been improving year on year, mm. and the ability to do things like liquid deposition of multi-layer coated conductors and stuff like that. So it's it looks like we might be we might actually start seeing this uh, technology take shape, which will be very good news for deep space exploration and human exploration because at the moment it's it's a bit of a non-starter until you can sort that radiation problem out yeah that is really great news i mean uh, we're all up for safety in space aren't we matt and this it looks like it's going to be a big thing it's a big thing it's a big thing so that was a really interesting article so yeah if you if you get the chance you can download the jbis articles from uh, the british interplanetary society website they're always worth a read there's always some very interesting stuff in there well, roll out the superconducting magnetic coils. Indeed. Is what I say. So, Jamie, we've been having some great listeners' letters this week. Oh, yeah? Mm-hmm. Who's saying mm-hmm. what? Who's saying what? We've had a couple. We had um, one guy uh, called Bob. Hi, Bob. Uh, who, who enjoyed our little chat about the X-37. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, he's been taking pictures, and it, it kind of sounds like he's been leaning out of his window with an iPhone and managing to capture glimpses of the x-37 that's really impressive it's funny because it's like those satellite pictures that you see where it's a star field with a streak across the sky mm. but it's quite phenomenal isn't it that someone nowadays can lean out their window with with their phone and take a picture of one of the world's most secretive satellites maybe apple are missing a trick <laughs> maybe maybe that's how they should promote their phones absolutely and uh, I don't know whether he took it with his iPhone, actually. He just said phone. Yeah. So it may have been, it may have been an Android, a, oh. a superior oh, Android poor, phone. Perhaps. Poor guy. <laughs> I'm here for you, Bob. So, <laughs> he's definitely got an Android. I mean, if we were to go by base rate statistics, he's almost certainly got an Android and not an iPhone. Mm. Anyway, yeah, well, we could always look at the metadata and find out. But I, I've, put, <laughs> I've put a link to his little photos. Cheers for that, Also. Bob. Brilliant. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm. We've got a bit of space news that one of the uh, listeners has uh, emailed in. Uh, he thought it was it was worth pointing out that Ariane Space, yeah. the European Space Agency's um, basically ride into space, I suppose, uh, uh, our native rocket programme, mm. uh, is having a bit of a rough ride at the moment. Oh, what's happening? Mm, well, remember a few months ago, uh, it had that anomaly where it where it basically went off on the wrong trajectory yes. because it wasn't programmed up properly. Uh, well, that satellite that's going to take uh, a long time to get into its correct orbit and burn up a lot of fuel, it looks like that is going to be a $108 million insurance claim Ooh. for the Yarsat by the Abu Dhabi-based Yarsat. That's quite Yarsat a big claim. 3. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's not great because they reckon they're going to lose 43% of revenue uh, and it's nowhere near going to get to its 15-year design life as it's used so much fuel to get get into the correct orbit. Someone's in trouble. Yeah, as as we were discussing with David Baker 
um, last week, it's quite hard to change the plane of your orbit. Mm. Although he, he, you know, that was really interesting, wasn't it? That Buzz Aldrin wrote all those really interesting papers about orbital mechanics. Yeah. Buzz is the man. He really is. What, what, yeah. I, I, I actually listened to that interview several times to try and get my head around it. Brilliant. Incredible. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but not only that, Ariane 5, um, unfortunately, has also had one of its uh, launches cancelled as uh, well. So this is GSAT 11. Because of GSAT 6. So <sighs> we reported a few weeks ago that the ISRO lost contact with GSAT 6. So it, it's still up there. And actually, in this next interview, you'll hear about how they sometimes try and uh, get recontact with them, which is very interesting. Uh, but, um, yeah, that seems to be lost, and, and therefore the ISRO are recalling that satellite to see if they can sort out that problem. Ouch. It seems to have been part of a much bigger political problem Mm. where um, private broadband and the ISRO might not be mixing very, very well. So, um, yeah, it's it's not great news for the Indian space and it's certainly not good for Ariane space, whose next launch now won't be until July. Mm, That's quite a while. Yeah, which will be some more Galileo satellites, which, of course, poor old Blighty may not be part of Mm. in a few years' time. Uh, and not only that, OneWeb has shifted the debut launch of its satellite mega constellation to the fourth quarter of this year. So the first, oh, yeah. So the first ten satellites of the initial nine hundred they're going to launch. It's ridiculous. <laughs> that is amazing, isn't it? Um, yeah, we'll be at the, near the end of this year, last quarter, rather than soon. It's Anything soon, with but... mega constellation in gets my vote, Matt. I think we should have an interplanetary uh, mega constellation. You reckon? And call it Valis, <laughs> and, con- and control people's minds oh, yes. with pink light. This song's called Pink Light. <laughs> <laughs> this song's called Pink Light, and it's going to control your minds. Hey, Matt, talking of minds, mm-hmm. you know what's going on in China, don't you? I have no idea what's going on in China. Tell me. Well, they're only developing a long march launch vehicle with a reusable first stage that could have its own trial as early as 2020. Do you think about that? I think it's pretty amazing. Mm. I mean, I've seen pictures of it, and obviously it's got the grid fins at the top, and it looks very similar to the kind of way that SpaceX may do it. Yeah. Obviously, they're looking at SpaceX and thinking, does it really cut the costs? Because in China, do you know, mm. there's, a, there's a kind of view that SpaceX, uh, because of America's obsession with trying to get this reusability, mm. it, that they've opened up a window for China and Europe to uh, make their launch vehicles more successful in the meantime because we haven't been doing that. Um, so that uh, it looks like this Long March 8 um, medium lift launcher is really just there to, to test the whole SpaceX um, hypothesis, they think, that it's going to reduce costs. They, you know, they don't think that that's a that they don't think that that's a done deal. Yeah. They, because SpaceX are the only people that have done it. We've only got their word for it. Right. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it seems like they're they're a way behind, but they could be quick to catch up, Matt. They're, they're, they'll catch up. They'll catch up big time. They'll catch up big time. Made in China. What's what's been going on in private space this week? Well, it's all about Blue Origin, isn't it? Oh, Bezos. New Shepard system. Eighth time this Sunday, launching from West Texas. 
pretty amazing. Just banging them out, isn't it? Yeah. We were saying, Matt, how long are we away from uh, us being able to, you know, buy a Blue Origin ticket? Send us up. Well, we, we, if we're willing to become test passengers, it might be Which the end of are, this year. If you're listening, bees. If you're listening, Mr. Bezos, we're quite willing to become test passengers. And of course, we shall um, wax lyrical about our experience on the podcast, thus reaching tens of people. <laughs> to advertise your yeah. <laughs> services. If you want promo, <laughs> you know where to come to. If you want a key influencer, you've got two. Now, I did enjoy their webcast because uh, it was hosted by Ariane Cornell. Ariane. Yeah, and I think that's funny, isn't it, that, that a rocket company should have a uh, a presenter with the name of a rocket. <laughs> that is brilliant. Yeah, her middle name's Five, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> Ariane 5 Cornell Wouldn't it be great if her surname was Dreamcatcher? Oh yes, Ariane Dreamcatcher Cornell oh, I'd love that Maybe she, we should suggest it to her Might send that, her a text uh, She needs to change it by <laughs> <laughs> Deed Paul uh, Yeah, so um, Yeah, so we might see commercial services At the beginning of next year Cool People might actually be paying to go up in that thing at the beginning of next year. How much do you reckon a ticket, Matt? Well, I think Bezos has suggested it's in the running with competitors. So that's 200 grand then? Yeah, I'm assuming he means Virgin Galactic. So, mm. yeah, 200 grand, 250 grand, something like that. There's all, they've already got commercial payloads on there. NASA sent some stuff up, and I noticed the German space agency, DLR, spent, sent up quite a few experiments for microgravity experiments. It's quite cool. That's very cool. Well, guys, you know, we have a Patreon page. We just need £199,999 to go. Well, that's each. Yeah. So we actually need a bit more than that. Well, unless, Matt, you want me to go. And I'll just tell you what it's like. How much is it? 200 grand? Yeah. If we only raise 200 grand, who's going to go out of us two? Well, it's got to be me because I've got no kids. So if I blow up, it's okay. Oh, yeah, true. Okay. You know, you've got a family to look after, Matt. Well, uh, yeah, you're, you're more dispensable. I am. I am. It's <laughs> what you're saying. <laughs> but if I know our listeners, there'll be dozens of people very sad. What, what else is happening in human space? Well, you know our mate Eric Berger at Ars Technica. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I know him. Check this out. SpaceX and Boeing spacecraft may not become operational until 2020. Quote, the contractors have had difficulty executing aggressive schedules. This is starting to get embarrassing, isn't it, really? It's a bit I mean, cringy, we, isn't it? We've almost gone a decade where uh, America and NASA have not been able to launch humans into space. Yeah. Almost a decade. Yeah, so it's it's not good. This comes out of an assessment, actually. We, we should talk about this assessment of large projects by the Government Accountability Office. Oh, the GAO? The GAO, yeah, because it's looking like it, everything is slipping back. So there's been some technical difficulties for SpaceX with their composite overwrap pressure vessels that made that satellite blow up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also there was cracks in the Merlin engines that have been apparently fixed for this Block 5, and we'll be talking about Block 5 slightly later. Uh, but any cracks were unacceptable risks for human spaceflight. Boeing have been having similar technical difficulties. Their uh, Starliner spacecraft tumbled in simulations. Mm. Uh, so... They're going to have hopefully have some form of pad abort flight test soon that will that will mean that they can iron that out. And uh, NASA's not convinced by their heat shield either that that that's the thing that protects the parachutes, and it may damage the parachutes as it pulls away from the spacecraft. Yeah, so I mean you want to get that got to sort right. those problems out. 
Yeah, and, and, and apparently if they can't get it right and it requires a, a redesign, then, then that schedule's going to slip another six months. Mm. Which is not good news at all, is it? It isn't. Optimistically, the first time we might see a Starliner is August of this year, and the same SpaceX we might see it in August as well, with both hoping for November and December uh, crew tests uh respectively, at the end of this year. But that's looking optimistic. Well, we're going to keep our fingers crossed. That's what we're saying. And the overall conclusion, by the way, of this uh, Government Accountability Office report was that NASA are having real problems. And, uh, uh, yeah, it's, it's, its performance on major projects has deteriorated with an average launch delay now uh, for 12, of 12 months. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And it's the worst uh, that it's been in the 10 years that it's been assessing NASA. I reckon they're going to pull it back. They'll pull it back, yeah. Well, well, maybe this is the shot in the arm they need, a nice bit of criticism. Exactly. Well, Matt, I'd like to talk about the moon versus Mars. Okay, do it. NASA has ceased work on its only lunar rover, the Resource Prospector. That's a good name, that, isn't it? Yeah, it's nice. Raising concerns among some scientists about how serious the space organisation is about fulfilling President Trump's recent vow to send astronauts to the moon. Mm. Oof, what do you think about that, Matt? Do you know what I think about that? And I think a few commentators have, have picked up on this. This might be people who are kind of anti the current administration mm. lining up the dice so that when the next administration comes in, they can cancel the trip to the moon and quickly switch the focus back to Mars. Mm. That that might be one of the reasons. Yeah, or it might just be, right. be, it might just, because the timing is suspicious just at the time when Bridenstine got kind of made head of NASA and he's such a, a moon nut. You'd mm. expect like almost a crisis for him right right out the blocks. Yeah. Um, but... Um, yeah, we'll see. It might just be the fact that they're turning around to, to commercial space to do those lunar rovers. You just never know. It could be. Well, watch this space, literally. One of my, my favourite stories of the week, Jamie, is mm-hmm. that ESA and NASA have both agreed at the ILA in, in, uh, at Berlin uh, to uh, investigate bringing Martian soil back to Earth. Ooh. Man, this is, this is hard to do. You need at least three missions to do it. Uh, how come? Well, I'll, I'll explain roughly how they're thinking of doing it. You've got the 2020 Mars rover mm. and ExoMars rover, which which uh, is 2021. Uh, so they will sort of go around collecting um, samples. Mm. And the Mars 2020 rover is going to pick up loads of samples and put them into 31 canisters that it's going to sort of litter around the Mars landscape. And then you've got to send a, a fetch rover... So there's going to be another rover that has to be sent that will go around picking up all these samples um, in a search and rescue style mission. And then that's got to take it to a Mars ascent vehicle. Now, bear in mind, there has never, ever been a rocket takeoff from Mars Mm. ever before. Ever before, Jamie, ever. Yeah, that's going to be amazing. Uh, Okay, first question straight off the bat. Why mm-hmm. would, well, I haven't even got to the third the third mission yet. Well, I've just got, before I forget. Okay, go go on. Go on why go on, would me. a rover collect thirty one canisters and then drop them randomly around to be collected? Why wouldn't it keep hold of the thirty one and then, if they needed to get a fetch rover, could just go to one rover to collect them? 
I don't get that. Do you know what? I, no, I I don't. Maybe it just makes the maybe it just makes the actual mechanics of it a hell of a lot easier. I actually don't know the answer to that question. Well, I'd like to speak to somebody at NASA, please. Well, na- well, well, maybe that's one of the things that NASA and ESA are going to be looking into: how they actually uh, do this geocaching of all their um, samples. I'm not having it, Matt. Put me through now, please. Hold. Where's, where's the red phone? Oh yeah, the interplanetary podcast emergency phone to uh, yeah, ESA and NASA. It, it's a thing, big time. Sorry, Matt. As you were. So there's a third mission that you then, once you've got this uh, Mars Ascent vehicle, that just gets the uh, football-sized container into Mars orbit. You've then got to send another uh, spacecraft that gets into Mars orbit, rendezvous with the container, and then brings it back to Earth, where it's then got to survive re-entry and land somewhere in America for collection. So it's a blooming hard thing. (sighs) Yeah, that really is. But wow, I mean... Um, how amazing would that be, looking at some Martian soil? That would be worth quite a bit, wouldn't it? You cannot you cannot put a price on how amazing having actual Martian soil, um, yeah, in a lab on Earth would be. I mean, it would... I'd like it, to be would... the first guy to eat food grown in Martian soil, apart from Matt Damon. Matt Damon! <laughs> <laughs> oh. So uh, we'll have to wait till 2019 for a decision to what we're going to do with these missions. Hey, Matt, you've got got some photos in space news, haven't you? Where's the jingle? Photos in space news. What do you think? I like that. That's good. So, so, yeah, our favourite, ExoMars. Brilliant. Now it's it's all slowed slowed down. Now it's had its software updates. Now it's had its new programming. It's been taking pictures. Oh, yes. And not only are these, so he managed to take a picture on the 15th of April, mm-hmm. uh, which is made up of three different colours that are taken simultaneously. And it took an image that captured the 40 kilometre long Korolov crater. You love this, Located in you? the high northern hemisphere. I don't think it's I've ever amazing... seen you so excited online. Yeah, it's a very, very beautiful picture. And it looks very, very different to the pictures that we see from the other orbiters. Yeah. So. I'm really excited that they're going to... Apparently, they're going to automate the image production process that that sort of churns out these beautiful images. It's so lovely, isn't it? It's just like some kind of dream. It is like a dream. I agree agree with you, yeah. Memories. I'm I'm with you. You're talking about memories. (laughs) Sorry, Matt. (laughs) Slipped into Blade Runner again. As always. It's just beautiful. Please go and see it if you haven't. We We should mention a few launches here because there's a couple of corkers coming up. Like proper corkers, and we'll, we'll cover them probably in more detail when they actually happen. But we've got uh, there's a there's a Chinese Long March three B that's going up with a just a uh, satellite. Uh-huh. Uh huh. But but uh, Jake from uh, We Martians will be very excited because I think he's down there for the launch of uh, Insight NASA's oh, Insight. So jealous. Which is another Mars lander. So that's flying very very soon. So that's this Saturday. Possibly, yeah. Possibly on Saturday on an Atlas V, the 401 configuration, from Vandenberg. So everyone needs to go and check out our mate Jake's podcast. I mean... Oh, yeah, he'll, yeah, he'll be big time talking about it's it. It's brilliant. Go and cover that. Yeah, I can't wait. I can't wait to talk to him about that. And uh, later on, a couple of days later, we shall see the very first launch. And in some ways, this is actually more important than uh, Falcon Heavy of the Falcon 9 Block 5. Oh, yes. So that's 7th. 
So they, yeah, so they've, they've got to get a few of them up in the air before they can start uh, carrying humans. So this is the final configuration of the Falcon 9, the Block 5. Mm, awesome. And it's, uh, yeah, it might be its first little outing. So that's going to be exceedingly exciting. Jamie, I'm going to take us to our interview now because we've been rabbiting on. We have been rabbiting. Let's do it. Écoutez. So I'm at the base of Antenna 6 with Eddie Search from Goon Hilly. Uh, hi, Eddie. Welcome to, welcome to the podcast. Hi. Um, so tell us a little bit about where we are now and what that dreadful noise is. OK. We're on the roof of the base building of the Goon Hilly uh, 6 antenna. Um, the antenna was built in 1985, so it's... Uh, fairly old now, but uh, we are going to refurbish it for deep space. Um, the noise you can hear is the um, lubrication running on the motors. Um, as you can see right next to us, we've got a, a circular track that the antenna moves in azimuth on, that's degrees from north. And um, we can almost do a 360 degree uh, movement with this antenna. Um, in elevation, we can go up to uh, 90 degrees, um, so we can see pretty much the whole of the sky from here. Um, the antenna itself says 32 metres. It's a Cassegrain antenna with uh, a, what's called a beam waveguide um, coming down, which takes the signal from the centre of the antenna, effectively through mirrors and a pipe, down to a feed which is actually in the building and that enables us to put all the equipment inside a building at ground level rather than have it strapped up at the back of the centre of the dish. So it's actually a physical pipe rather than uh, electronics well, it, coming down? it's really not a pipe, it's a, um, a circular enclosure which just stops you sticking your head inside <laughs> the, the beam, yeah. there, but it's not a waveguide in the true sense of the word waveguide. Oh, okay. Um, it's really done with mirrors, no smoke. <laughs> <laughs> OK, well, one thing I did notice when I'm looking up at the dish is that you, you can actually see through the, the parts of the dish. Yeah, there are gaps between the petals of the dish. Each of the petals is um, adjustable so you can get the profile accuracy right. And we're looking to uh, a profile accuracy of about um, one millimetre um, uh, of the main 32 metre dish. The gaps in there aren't significant um, because that's the, the, the amount of gap you can have is related to the wavelength. Yeah. So the, the gaps are quite small and uh, they effectively don't have any impact on the uh, any insignificant impact on the performance of the antenna. Okay. What what about the actual surface material of the, the antenna? Does that? It's just painted um, aluminium. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. And the, does the paint have to be special paint? Mm only from the point of view that you don't want mould and horrible right, okay. things growing on the yeah. dish with the weather that we get at Goon Hilly because yeah. we're quite near the sea as well so the corrosive impacts of salt and yeah. the, the wind um, we need to make sure that uh, the antennas are, are painted with the, the right sort of paint yeah I mean I can see there's quite a bit of rust but presumably it's all that's all going to be dealt with um, under the refurbishment oh, okay. um, because we went for a number of years where uh, the initial plan when BT had the site was to demolish all the antennas um, so once that decision had been made and that was before GES came onto the scene yeah. um, they basically stopped maintaining the antennas and then uh, 
we've been since GES bought the site we've been going around and uh, bringing the antennas back to life after several years of no maintenance. Yeah, so presumably BT didn't see a, a commercial or, or for their particular business model any kind of commercial um, No, they have another utility. site in Hereford, uh, a place called Madley, and they decided to keep that site. And the original plan, as I understand it, from BT was to turn this place into a wind farm and demolish all the antennas. <laughs> and um, luckily, Ian Jones, who's the CEO of GES, heard about that. And uh, like a lot of us, was um, right. rather dismayed at the prospect of demolishing all these antennas when we knew that they had a future. Yeah. And um, the future now for Goonhilly is involved in things like deep space, uh, turning this antenna into a deep space network. Um, two of the other antennas, which we can see from here, over in that direction is Aerial 3, um, which is uh, at this moment pointing straight up into the sky. We're going to uh, adopt that one uh, for radio astronomy, turn it into a radio telescope, and also perhaps use that for deep space as well. And Aerial 1, which you can't see from where we're standing, which was the original antenna on the site, built in 1962. Um, that uh, antenna is also going to be used for radio astronomy. So is there any other bit that we can Yeah, we can at? go inside. Okay, so we're back inside, slightly different noise now, uh, inside the base building of Goon Hilly 6. Um, so yeah, tell us a little bit about this, Eddie, if you Okay, can. well, in the centre of the room, we've got the... Uh, a grey box which goes right up to the ceiling and through the ceiling is the feed uh, which through those mirrors connects to the antenna through the beam waveguide. Um, in that grey box in the middle we've got uh, uh, a rather complex feed which at the moment operates at C-band and KU-band, dual polarisation, transmit and receive on each band. So it's quite a complicated feed. Um, so on the four sides of the grey box we've got two polarisations for C-band transmit. Opposite that we've got, in fact just one polarisation is equipped for KU-band transmit. On the right hand side of the box we've got the KU-band uh, dual polar receive and on the left hand side of the grey box we've got the dual polar um, C-band receive. I can see that there's some oscilloscopes. How do, how, uh, do presumably yeah. you, you check the oscilloscopes to make sure that they're, that you've got some yeah, signal these, coming these down? Yeah, these are for basically checking the bandwidth of the uh, low noise amplifiers, which are the small white boxes we can see up here. You can see three white boxes. Um, it's one low noise amplifier for each of the received C-band polarisation. And then the third white box uh, is... Um, connected via switches, so if either of the two main low noise amplifiers fail, the spare can be switched in immediately, you see any failure. So you're saying that, that it goes two ways, so you can actually talk up to... It transmits and receives transmits at the same time. Yeah. So is, is that a bit like shining a torch up at a, at a satellite, in terms of you're, yeah, you're I trying mean, to it, get it in your beam of light? As yeah, the, the, the antenna is does the same function at... Um, radio frequency uh, that uh, a torch does at light frequencies. So it's exactly the same principle. The, the antenna is really just a mirror. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, you, you are yeah, beaming up, beaming up and trying to get the satellite inside your, 
That's correct, yeah, Scotty. Yeah, your beam of light. <laughs> yeah. If only we could beam yeah. ourselves up, we'd be, be, that'd be a lot easier process. Yeah, and then between the low noise amplifiers, you've got uh, um, RF switches. These are waveguide switches. And they have to trans transfer over or switch over within just a couple of hundred milliseconds. Um, the reason for that sort of goes back to the days when we used to use satellites for all the um, international telephony. Um, if the waveguide switches changed over too slowly, then all the telephone calls through the international exchanges would drop out. Right. And the telephone exchanges are only designed to um, have random uh, receipt of phone calls. Mm. If you were to, say, drop, you know, say, 960, in the old analog days, we used to have 960 channel carriers. If one of those was to drop out for more than a couple of hundred milliseconds, you had the risk of then 960 phone calls all dropping at the same time. They would then all try to redial and that could overload the International Telephone Exchange because no. it doesn't expect that number of calls to arrive at one time. And then that congestion of the International Exchange would then go on for um, you know, hours afterwards, after the event. Yeah, that, that's absolutely crazy, isn't it? The, so so these, these, all these black pipes, are yep. these what you would call waveguides? These are waveguides. Um, the waveguides, the size of them depends on the frequency. So these sort of fairly large ones, about a couple of inches across, um, these carry C-band receive signals. But on the right-hand side here, uh, we've got rather smaller waveguide which carries the transmit signals. Transmit signals are at 6 gigahertz and the receive signals are at 4 gigahertz. So the size of the waveguide is related to the wavelength. Right. So at 4 gigahertz, it's a larger wavelength yep. than at 6. But and similarly, I mean, we've got waveguides um, at KU band oh yeah, even uh, for smaller. transmit and receive, which are much smaller. Yeah. Yep. I mean, I'd, I'm always amazed when I see these things that they're so such a physical device that they're kind of... That are, presumably, they have to be made to an incredibly high accuracy, these waveguides. Yeah, right? it's, it's precision metal work. Um, we sort of call it plumbing. <laughs> uh, it's precision plumbing. Um, and we, what used to happen was these waveguides would go from the antenna back to the main building. But what we're using nowadays is uh, these things over here, these little yellow tubes. Very, uh, they're optical fibres. Yeah. And what we're using is RF over fibre, so we amplitude modulate the light right. going down an optical fibre with the RF signals. And uh, this is much more flexible. Um, Literally. Yeah, very flexible. <laughs> uh, and it means that you can easily patch one antenna to another, etc. Yeah, I mean, that, that, yeah, obviously that seems... <laughs> presumably that's a quite a complicated process to go from one to from that sort of physical system to a light to system. something like yeah, this, and this is much easier and it's a lot cheaper and easier to maintain. Yeah. I'm assuming it's a lot more expensive than copper pipe, for example. <laughs> yeah, it is much more expensive than ordinary copper pipe. Yeah, the, yeah. the plumber would do the hot water. Uh, <laughs> now on this rack in front of us, we've got um, a number of items. We've got uh, um, uh, a special box here which links back through the internet to 
one of the satellite operators, the people who own the satellites. Um, what we're doing here is um, a function called TTNC, Telemetry Tracking and Control. Um, what this box does, it formats uh, commands that go up to the spacecraft and it receives the telephony coming down from the spacecraft and connects the antenna back to the satellite operator's premises. Um, and there are various satellite operators that we work with, which includes uh, SES, who are headquartered in Luxembourg, mm. Inmarsat's headquartered in London, uh, Intelsat is headquartered in Washington, and um, who's the other one? Sorry, SES. No, we don't uh, do anything for Surrey Satellites at the moment, although we are working with them on uh, various projects. Mm. Um, anyway, what we, we do, we have these boxes here, these little grey boxes, which are sort of about an inch high. These are called up converters and down converters. The up converters take the signals that we want to transmit and set them to the transmit frequencies. And the down converters effectively tune into the receive frequencies that we want from the satellite. Um, the whole lot here is linked to GPS and from the GPS system we can get a 10 megahertz frequency standard which locks all the frequency conscious elements together um, and ensures you don't have drifting. So, so, so the GPS is acting as a sort of calibration Tool, yeah, right? Yes, a frequency standard, and yeah. it also time stamps the signals that are transmitted and yeah. received. So um, things are a lot different over the last 10 to 15 years. There's been a massive move from the, uh, well, certainly from the analog and also the early digital type signals, and now everything uh, comes to us here, whether it be TV, data, telephony, what have you, it all comes in IP format. Right. So we just deal with IP signals and we don't worry too much about what the content is on those IP signals. Um, just over here we've got um, two units about five inches high each in this rack. These are high power amplifiers, they're KU band amplifiers, and these can take the signals up to several hundred watts to transmit up to the satellite. Just on the other side of the room we've got some three kilowatt um, travelling wave tube amplifiers uh, which are used for the C-band signals so they can give us uh, an EIRP or equivalent isotropic radiated power of around 90 dBW with the antenna gain which is around 63 uh, dBi. Right. Um, just behind us if we walk over in this direction we've got the antenna steering system um, this is uh, the original antenna steering system. It was made by um, Mitsubishi, a Japanese company, um, who were responsible for the uh, system here. It's six, seven, it's seven racks of equipment. Um, the logic in it is all relay logic. Um, this was all designed before you had sort of chips which you could use, but you can see the relays through the glass panels epic, on the it? racks. Um, computer over here is a step track computer which drives the antenna in azimuth and elevation. So the step track computer, it, it takes small steps away from the satellite in each direction, left, right, up and down, 
and it determines whether the signal strength is going up or down and thereby it can um, maintain a, a picking up on the satellite to track it. Right. Um, what happens when you first switch that on is that uh, it goes into a 24-hour learning period because the satellite moves in a, a regular pattern each day. Um, it's called a figure of eight. It, it sometimes does look like a figure of is eight. That, is that an analemma type thing? Right, yeah. Is it, is it a it, similar sort of thing? It's a similar sort of thing because um, what happens with the satellite, you've got uh, a north-south movement, mm -hmm. uh, which will happen because the satellite's not exactly on the equatorial orbit, and there's uh, an east-west movement in the orbit because it's not perfectly circular. Yeah. So the east-west movement every day and the north-south movement uh, gives you that figure of eight. But sometimes it can look like it's like a lithodew figure yeah. on a scope. Yeah, right. Uh, the eight can turn into a circle or a straight line. Right, yeah, okay. Um, so, and that's because it's, is that because of the position it's supposed to be in or because it's never quite it's perfect? It's because it's never quite perfectly in that in the, uh, where it should orbital be, yeah. location where it yeah. should be. And what happens is the satellites use up the fuel, the rather than use fuel to keep the station keeping exact, yeah. um, the uh, satellite owners will allow it to go more and more into an inclined orbit. Um, and as the satellite gets old, they need to make sure there's a certain amount of fuel left to put it into a graveyard orbit at yeah. the end of its life. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a fairly newish thing, isn't it? Because obviously that, that's space debris problem presumably. yeah on the geostationary uh, satellites they go up into a, a higher orbit rather than the space junk that you get with the low yep. orbiting satellites near where the international space station is because the low orbit, low orbit satellites and the space station they're only a couple of hundred miles high above the earth's surface whereas the geostationary satellites are 22,300 miles yep. or 36,000 kilometers up so if you've, got, if you've got a satellite that's, say, ageing or going wrong, could that be something that you'd actually pick up somewhere like here because it, it would be drifting outside of its Yeah, well, you'd parameters. see what's happening in terms of the um, monitored parameters. So all the monitored signals um, come down from the satellite on a beacon, uh, which is the same signal that you also use for tracking. Um, so you can see what's happening in terms of the um, bus voltages, fuel tank pressures, etc. Yeah. So you can look at the trends to see if uh, things are going to happen. What you can't do is a sort of catastrophic failure. Yeah. You, you can't, um, you can't guarantee do that. I think the, the Chinese space station that came down the other day, yeah. that they couldn't do anything with that because they'd lost um, contact with it. So. Yeah. There was no communication, so they couldn't do anything. But if you've got communications, you can usually do things, and uh, the operations they do on the spacecraft are, are very carefully planned out yeah. well in advance. I mean, if you lose contact with a satellite, how, how easy is it to, well, or how hard is it to try and regain contact? Because the, the Indians really uh, did GSAT 6A mm. or something this last week, and after a couple of manoeuvres, they lost contact with it. But yeah. I've heard about that before, and they've managed to recontact it and then control it. Is yeah. That... Well, one of the things that we have to do uh, in terms of the TPNC activities, telemetry tracking control, is we have to have um, a significant margin of extra power so that if the satellite loses the signal from mm. us, mm. then we can actually increase the power towards the satellite so that there's a better chance of it receiving our signals and getting it back into control. Yeah. 
So um, you know, typically we might operate at an EIRP of say 72 dBW yep. for TT and C, but we might have to go up to say getting on for 90 dBW, yep. which is you know, nearly 20 dB more, so 100 times more power. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, to try and regain control of that spacecraft. We've never had to do it, by no. the way. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's something that we uh, is there. have I mean, to be prepared to do just in case. Yeah, because uh, the one thing I used to do quite a lot was astrophotography, and obviously there's, there's, a, there's a kind of an analogy with that, because the, with the tracking thing in yeah. particular, you've got, you would, uh, I'd had a computer-controlled tracking system, which would always be ahead and looking and adjusting. But there was also a, a, a program that could kind of home in on a star. So if you couldn't find it, it would kind of scan in a square. Did, is there a sort of similar process here, where where it kind of if you lose it, you kind of spiral yeah, out and well, try and well, that's what spiral sort of, down in. Um, sort of box scan is the the type of technique that we can use if we're trying to look for a satellite manually. Um, and you might try that sort of when you're first trying to point roughly to where the satellite is, and then the uh, step track system will usually find it pretty quickly. But we also get, every day we receive from the uh, satellite owners um, uh, 11 point ephemeris parameters, um, which allow you to accurately um, work out where, you're, where you should be pointing to in the sky, so in, in azimuth and elevation. And, um, we can calculate that for any time of the day and, and the ephemeris parameters will go for uh, typically a week yeah. so that, um, that we can get a very accurate prediction to within you know, a hundredth of a degree in azimuth and elevation as to where to point to. With this enormous rack of equipment here, and I'm assuming that this is your classic case of it, it could be replaced with something. It will be replaced with something a lot smaller. smaller. So It'll probably be replaced. All of these seven racks will probably be replaced by you know maybe a rack. Yeah, well that's, so, that's incredible. And I mean all those relays for the logic will probably go into. Do, does this all go in the chips. bin, or does it go, or does it go to some uh, third world? Well, it'd be nice to think system. it would go in, in the bin. No, no one would want to use this. Uh, again, um, it's it's actually proved quite reliable. We don't get too many issues with it. Uh, in fact, the the Japanese equipment that we've had installed here for many years has worked very very reliably. Um, it's been good stuff. But you know, everything has its day, and it's time to move on. Um, so this will probably all end up on the junkyard unless the museum wants it. Yeah, it's incredible, isn't it? I, just, I almost want it for my lounge. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, I don't think the missus will go with it. Go These with are it. the um, three kilowatt traveling wave tube uh, amplifiers for C-band transmit. And the, the traveling wave tube is a, a, a amplifying valve, about 30 dB gain, 1,000 times gain. And you can see one of those over here. So this this is old. This, this is pretty old tech, then, isn't it? Or, or yeah, I think the, the tech was designed so sort of during probably the war, the Second World War, um, but it's still used now because the only way you can get such high powers out of transmitters is either using these travelling wave tubes or klystrons, hmm. something like that. Solid state amplifiers are used, and you can see there's a white box up on the top of those uh, C-band amplifiers. That's a solid state amplifier. 
much more economical. Um, we because we only want to uh, yeah. perhaps output around eight watts. So we, if we were to use a three kilowatt amplifier, that's probably taking about 17 kilowatts of prime power. Right. Uh, whereas a solid state amplifier is much cheaper to run. Um, these things, these traveling wave tubes, um, is basically an electron beam that runs through the tube. Um, it's accelerated up to about something like 14,000 volts. Um, you've probably got sort of, uh, let's think, uh, several hundred um, kilowatts of uh, power going through that and only about maybe 10% or so is coming out as RF power. The rest right. of it is lost in heat yeah. here. Hence the reason for all this air conditioning. Yeah, and all, all these pipes going into the back of the amplifiers, they're just carrying air in, circulating air around the traveling wave tubes. So are these, are these actually more, are these a, a sort of higher quality, the valve ones over the solid state ones? Are they all? Uh, well, they're not so much higher quality. They're, they're just the only way you can get that level of power. Oh, okay. So still, so you can't actually get solid state you, you ones. You can get solid state amplifiers with more power coming out, but all you do is put lots and lots of them in parallel. Right. Okay. Um, but you know, it's a very expensive way of doing it then. Yeah. So you know, there's a break point between sort of where you go from solid state to where you go to uh, vacuum tubes. Right, yeah. So that's a, that's a particularly mature technology then. Yeah, that, that it is. Application of the, do, you find it, do you find a problem actually getting, presumably the, the valves go eventually and, and yeah, you have to replace Yeah, typically the actual... life of maybe 50,000 hours. Right, okay. So is, are, are they easily replaceable, the, the valves? Uh, you still get manufacturers that make them? Yeah, you can, you can buy them. <laughs> it's a bit tricky to actually install because um, there's not a lot of room in, the, yeah. uh, in there and not a lot of room to get your hands in. So. <laughs> I'm only saying that because obviously uh, as, cause as a guitarist, it's quite hard to find valves that are of the same quality that, that used to get made in the 60s and 70s. Yeah. They, just, they just don't make them of that quality. Yeah, and there are several manufacturers around. I can think of three or four sort of straight off on the top of my head. Are, that, that, are they uh, Soviet ones? Uh, are we no, well, I'm, I'm an American, German. Oh, okay. Yeah, the, the Russians seem British. to make really good bows yeah. for the guitars anyway. Yeah, well, these aren't like, the, this is, a, as you can see, it's a metal yeah. case. Uh, it's, it's not a glass uh, vacuum tube, it's a right. metal right, vacuum okay. tube inside. Oh, okay. So you don't get a nice, nice glowing vacuum no, tube. No, no. You have still got a cathode and an anode. No. Okay, but it's um, completely yeah. Okay, so it's completely different. And whereas I suppose the, the comparison might be in a triode, you'd have a yep. grid. In this, you've got a slow wave structure, so-called, between the anode and the cathode, which um, velocity modulates the electron beam so that as it travels down, as the beam travels down the tube. Um, the information at the input is transferred onto the beam and as uh, the beam moves down the tube you get bunches of electrons which when they hit the cavity at the output um, they like make the output ring like a bell right, okay. um, so you get energy transferred from the electron beam into the waveguide cavity uh, and then to the output of the tube. God, people were well clever weren't they? <laughs> yeah they were. <laughs> it's such a clever piece of tech. Yeah, we're not half as clever as we think we are. <laughs> no, 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 it's, it's, yeah. 
like you said, I suppose a lot of this stuff came out of, came out of the yeah, war. Yeah, and there are pe people over the years have, have built on what people before them have done, and things have developed. Yep. And, uh, yeah, like I said, it's a, and refined. a, a mature piece of technology. Yeah. Yeah. Jamie, what a lovely guy Eddie Search was. Just such a lovely guy. And super interesting. Thank you. Yeah, I've got to thank everyone down at Goon Hilly, especially Kat who um, organised all that, and she was extremely nice. Cheers, Kat. And I've, got, I've actually got another uh, interview from that in the can as well, and I'll play that uh, uh, in a few weeks' time, because that's, that's really interesting about someone's entire career spent at a uh, uh, in space. It's incredible. Not in space, obviously. Wow. But in space. Yeah. So, Jamie, got a space fact for me? Have I ever? Are you ready? Go on, then. Yep, hit me. Okay, space fact of the week. The distribution of galaxies in space is close to uniform when averaged over sufficiently large scales with no observable boundary or edge. Wow, okay. Yeah, which is weird. It's actually a bit weird. Uh, it's just smooth. Space is smooth. It is, isn't it? Yeah, but, you know, it was Edwin Hubble that kind of really noticed that. But he also noticed a special area called the Zone of Avoidance. Oh, yes. Hit the <laughs> gong. <laughs> the Zone of Avoidance. And so that was a, an area where it looked like there were no galaxies and that there was a sort of anomalous patch of sky that had no galaxies in it. Mm. But it turns out that that's just interstellar dust. It's just part of the Milky oh. Way getting in the way. So, yeah, so but so if you go in infrared, an infrared light, of course, can go straight through dust. It, uh, the dust doesn't get in its way. Mm. It's not so blocked by it like normal light. Uh, you clearly start to see all these galaxies, and it's as many as you'd expect. But the brilliant bit about the zone of avoidance is it has another fantastic space feature, which is the great attractor <laughs> dong the great attractor is a very very interesting space anomaly if ever there was one so we're all moving towards it oh yes i'm the great attractor which is a bit like you on a night out i'm i'm kind of like a mega constellation slash great attractor that's yeah? what that's what everyone's saying <laughs> That's everyone's talking about. <laughs> I'm determined to have an episode about the Great Attractor. What do you think? We should we should swat up on it. I think we should. But it. when you say an episode, do you mean a yeah. podcast or just one of your little? Shall we? Shall we leave our? Shall we leave our listeners leave to get our on with their lives? I mean, they've got better things to do, haven't they? Yeah, and I don't think we we need to mention Patreon and going to iTunes and five star five reviews, reviews this week and subscribing. We don't bore you. Sending us don't, comments. Don't we don't need to mention any of that. No, so have a brilliant week in space. Remember, guys, don't listen to Kanye West. He's an idiot who's very <laughs> successful doing something he's very good at. But don't listen to what he says in real life outside of his songs. Just listen to me and Matt and all will be okay. It's a bit like taking tax advice off Bono because he wrote some good songs back in the 80s. <laughs> it's just like, it's just like, get over yourselves. Oh, God, you know what I mean? Just anyway. stop. Anyway, that's nothing to do with space. Sorry, everyone. No. Bye-bye, podcats. See you later.